By way of slight background, at the, at the Central Bank of Ireland, uh, I'm responsible for policy and risk. Um, at the Central Bank, we regulate um, all of the sectors, let's say, and we, so, so uh, uh, banks, insurers, asset managers, funds, and we regulate from both the prudential and the conduct and the consumer protection perspective. Uh, also, we, of course, we have our financial stability mandate. So, so we do see the full picture, which, 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 is, which is interesting. And, and what we're seeing at the moment um, is, a, is a very significant amount of activity. Um, uh, the, the, since, I would say, the fall of last year, um, the, the, the level of, of, of uh, in, in the first phase, exploratory interest from, from uh, firms located in the UK and now wondering how they will uh, manage their EU 27 facing business um, have been very actively engaged with, with us and, and, and many other supervisors uh, across, across Europe. In the first instance, was working out so what does it mean and, and, and how, uh, how do we see the world, how do they see the world, and then as we go forward, um, get, getting more towards, well, I would say now a lot of firms are sort of in the, uh, the concretization phase, they're in the phase of, of working out, um, you know, finally, I would say over, 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 many of them over the coming uh, summer months will, will, will make their decisions as to... As to, as to um, what they will do to arrange themselves. And there's lots of, you know, lots of firms with all sorts of different uh, um, existing uh, if you like, footfalls in Europe, uh, and that's obviously very determinative in how, how they see their, 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 their way forward. So, so lots of activity, I think, is, is, is the message there. Um, I think, so my first slide here is just the, the context, and I think it's important to understand that because I think many of, of the discussions uh, that are ongoing uh, really do take their... Their, their meaning from, from the context. And, and, and three things I wanted just to pull out uh, to, to start off. The first is, is, is uncertainty. Uh, the uncertainty is just rife. No one knows uh, where, where this is going to end up uh, in terms of the, the, the large-scale political negotiations or then more, more closer to home in terms of what will be the, the arrangement for financial services uh, and financial markets across Europe uh, going forward. Uh, so what we're seeing across the piece um, uh, both in firms and I guess amongst ourselves and the regulatory community is, 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 is encapsulated by hoping for the best and planning for the worst. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that's the strategy that, that, that people are adopting uh, and we think from a regulatory perspective it's the right strategy because uh, there's no doubt there's a, there's a, there's a non-trivial risk uh, that uh, come uh, March 2019 uh, things will not be in, in, in a great shape. So, so, so planning on that basis is, is, is useful. Um, and the substantive presence discussion, the substance discussion, um, takes place in the context of an assumption um, that the UK will be a third country um, and that they will be outside the single market and not subject to the ultimate oversight of the European Court of Justice. That, that's, that's the context in which the discussion is happening. If you, if you take different uh, assumptions, then of course you end up in, in different places, but that's the assumption on the sort of the planning for the worst uh, basis that people are, are, are making. Secondly, uh, time constraints. Uh, it's very important, uh, at, at least in, in my view, and I think many colleagues, to, to note that Brexit was not chosen uh, by the financial industry. Uh, it's not some kind of cunning strategy. Um, you know, so so, so we're, not, we're not dealing with sort of something the financial s services firms wished to make happen. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an enormous challenge for them, as it is for us uh, and, and policymakers generally. Um, and, and they're coping in particular with, with a lot of complexity, a lot of logistical challenges um, and time frames that are, are, are almost impossibly tight to do some of the things uh, that, that they need or, or, or want to be done. Um, and at the same time, the, the cliff effect risk, the risk of, of things not being in, in, a, in a good place 
uh, in March, April 2019. That's a risk, of course, to firms and their, and their, and their business, but it's also, it's, it's also a risk that we in the regulatory and supervisory community have to take account of, both in terms of the sort of financial stability issues and then more broadly, what does it mean in terms of the, the, simply the, the financial servicing um, of, of the different parts of the economy. So, so if you like, there's, there's, a, there's a things in play here which are pressed by time constraints that we're all having to deal with and we're all looking for solutions to. And that, that sort of drives, I think, a, a need for a degree of pragmatism, a degree of constructive engagement, not cleaving to sort of purist um, notions, but saying as long as we're not compromising on the core issues and the key matters, um, what kind of, how can we pragmatically solve this, this problem? So there's a balance that, that needs to be struck there. Um, and then I think the third thing to say is that, uh, you know, um, it's a, people, you, you sometimes see the discussion, you kind of, people sort of suggest, oh, what, what's going on there? Why are they doing that? Why, why, why is that happening in that country? The fact is, we're faced with issues that are very difficult, which have not really been discussed in any great detail before, and, and are complex to solve. Um, so so the, the question around the substantive presence, for example, it has never had this kind of presence uh, in, our, in our discussions or in the things we have to solve for in the past. So it's, it's inevitable that we're going to see divergences emerge before we, we converge again. And I'll say more about that um, in, in a moment. Um, so turning, tur turning to, to, to substantive uh, presence uh, and, and this question of um, putting it in, in, in very crude terms, and it's, and it's not, not terms I described to, 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 to anyone, but um, you, you might characterize it as, okay, if, if we as a, as a UK firm now want to have a subsidiary uh, in the EU 27 to continue doing our business, how much do we have to have there? Now, no one's asking that question in those terms, but that's sort of the question. What, what, what do you, the regulatory community, expect us to have in place for you to say, okay, we're willing to authorize you and to, and to supervise you going forward? That, that's kind of the, the, the question. Um, and there are, uh, there are at least three reasons uh, why that is, possibly four reasons, why that is um, a very important question and why we're all uh, spending so much time thinking about it uh, and, and, and trying to solve for it. Um, the first is just this question of mismatch. Um, if we end up with uh, a, a, a number, a, a reasonable large number of entities um, established, uh, establishing themselves um, as, as subsidiaries, as, as, as legal entities um, in Europe, um, uh, but their form does not match the reality. So if you have a mismatch between the form, so this, this is a, a, a legal entity doing such and such a business, but that's not the reality that underpins it, then we're storing up all sorts of difficulties for ourselves going forward. That, that, that's a, a sort of a morass um, that will take us ultimately into, 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 difficult, into difficult places. Um, the, so, so, so how we put this in the simplest of terms um, and I think, but I think there's, there's power in, in, in those terms, which is if we are asked as, an, as a regulator to authorize and supervise uh, an activity uh, in, in Ireland, in, in this case, um, then we will want to know that that, that that business or activity is run from our jurisdiction. So that, that, it's, it's as simple as that. If we're asked to authorize and take supervisory responsibility for the business, we want to know that it's run from our jurisdiction. And that's, it, it all comes back to that at the end of the day. Uh, why is that? Firstly, um, if it's not run from our <laughs> jurisdiction, then it's being run from somewhere else. 
And if it's being run from somewhere else, then the regulatory standards, the supervisory requirements, the, 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 the guidelines and the regulation that's applying uh, are not the ones that we think are being applied, which are ours or the European ones, but they're ones coming from a different jurisdiction. And that's, that's hugely problematic. Um, so the business has to be uh, where, where, where we are, uh, it has to be run from where we are in order to, to avoid that, that mismatch. Secondly, and, and, and it's important to keep these two, these things, two things often get uh, confused and, and it leads to confusion. A second issue, so, so one, issue, one issue is this question of um, you know, what, what standards and requirements are applying. The second issue, that, which is the third bullet, is, is a question of effective supervision. Um, a firm has to be set up in such a way that you as an authority can supervise it. Now, we had a long, over the past, let's say, two and a half, three years uh, in Ireland because of our large fund sector, um, we've had a long debate and dialogue with uh, our industry and other stakeholders around this question of, of good governance uh, and, and, and effective supervision um, of, of um, fund management companies. It's the so-called CP86 debate in, in, in Ireland, which has recently reached a conclusion. Um, with, we've published a feedback statement back at, at the turn of the year. Um, but crucial to that was, was we, we, we developed our ideas around what is effective supervision. Um, and, and, and as we went through that debate, where we ended up was saying that, of course, it's important that you have access to people and that you have access to documents and materials and that in good times as well as bad times you can get your hands on, on the management. But beyond all of that, the firm and its management must be within your sphere of influence. Uh, you have to, the, the, the firm, the management, they have to feel that you as a supervisor are present in their lives. So that gives, that gives a certain um, uh, certain requirements in terms of, 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 of presence and location. It's not an absolute thing. It allows for global spread, European spread, but there must be some kind of center of gravity which, which, which allows you to say as an influence, this firm falls within our uh, sway, within our sphere of influence. They, they're, they're not sort of so scattered and disparate that no one, they don't feel at all who's, who's supervising them. So that, that, that's part of that. And then finally, which is not a bullet point there, but I'll mention it, is resolution. Um, the, the arrangements must be such um, that if, 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 uh, if things go wrong, um, we can effectively resolve it. And very importantly, that the risks will crystallize where you think they will crystallize. So if, again, it brings us back to this mismatch point. If there's a mismatch between the firm, the reality, and the formality, um, then in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bad time, uh, the risks will crystallize differently than you expect them to crystallize. In terms of um, uh, then the key aspects of substantive presence, and, and I, I'll run through this quite quickly because I'm sure, I'm sure Nicola is going to tell me to spe speed up momentarily. Um, uh, as I say, the starting question is, is the business being run from here? Right? That, that's, that's a starting question. It's a holistic question. Okay? It, it's, it's, it's an, at least in my view, in our view, it's an error to get into a sort of a checkbox approach. And you, and you do see you know, the question being asked, so how many people do I need to have? That's not at all the way we, we, we think about it. It is a holistic question. Um, uh, you need to look at the business. You need to look at the, the nature, the scope, the scale of the business. Uh, and you're trying to work out from a range of factors, well, yeah, is that business being run from here? Um, or, 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 or is it not? And the second thing to say is that we are in an iterative process. No one at the moment, I think, has the answers. It is, it is, it's a sort of it's case by case. And then as that discussion is happening, also the discussion is happening at the conceptual level both nationally and at the European level. So, so there's, there's both those things uh, go, going on. Uh, clearly, governance is key. Um, uh, you will require the entity to have its board, 
and a senior management team, and that, that board and senior management, uh, both in terms of their makeup and their, their, their presence, must be consistent with the scale and nature of the business. Uh, their interests and incentives must be aligned with the business. So the question of double hatting uh, c comes up and, and, and is, is one that, that, that needs to be, to be very sort of, uh, so if, if, if can you be the, the CFO of, of an entity here and also uh, play a, ro a senior role in an entity in, in the UK? That's, that, that's one of the issues that comes up and, and, and is a challenging one. Um, the strategy, uh, the decision making, risk appetite setting, uh, risk management, internal controls, uh, these all must be, must be locally determined if the entity is really running the business from where it says it's running them. The resourcing of the entity um, must be consistent with the, with the scale and nature of the business. Um, the entity must have the responsibility in terms of acquiring, understanding, and managing its risks. Um, you, you can't get away from, uh, if it, you know, the, the, the business of financial services is a risk-based business, the entity must be in charge of those risks, otherwise it's not in fact run, run, running, 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 running its business. And you can, see these, um, you can see these concepts articulated quite well uh, in the guidance that the SSM issued uh, maybe six weeks ago now, uh, and then that, that ESMA issued um, uh, earlier, earlier, earlier this week. In terms of uh, then specific aspects that, that, that are sort of uh, very, very commonly occurring uh, in the discussion, um, the fir first is to say, you know, what is, what is the view of group integration? Group integration, the fact that an entity is part of a group, uh, can be an enormous strength and value. Um, and it is entirely appropriate that an entity setting up in Ireland or anywhere else in, in the EU is leveraging that strength. Is, is taking advantage of the, the, the skill sets, the expertise, the resources, all of the things that make up a strong, well-run, uh, high-quality group. So, 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 so that's what, what the firm is trying to achieve, and that's what we want them to achieve. Um, and then at the same time, uh, you want to make sure that that's not leading to actually they're, uh, they're, they're, they're hollowing themselves out. They're basically ending up in such a place that all of the decision-making, um, all of the, the, the important uh, issues are, 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 are being put somewhere else. Um, so we, we get this a lot in the discussion around back-to-back -back booking and on the insurance side, quota share reinsurance, which in some ways are, are very similar. The idea that you, um, you, you, you take the risk on uh, somewhere in the EU27 and you immediately back it out uh, to somewhere, in this case, in, in, in the UK. What, what, what is the view around that? Um, and this is something that the SSM has, has talked a lot about. Uh, what, what does quota share refer to? Uh, quota share is reinsurance, in, in effect. Um, but, oh, okay. But, so it's on the insurance side. So, so, oh, okay, so, I get so, it. So, so you, you basically, you underwrite uh, in, in your entity, but you immediately reinsure with, with another entity. Uh, and of course, those practices, back-to-back -back booking and reinsurance, they're very common and, and, and very healthy when done well. Um, so so the, the question is, how, how is that made consistent with um, making sure that the entity is still in charge of and still, and still running, 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 running its business. Um, I think key to it is making sure that there is a coherent, well-articulated risk management strategy. So we as a regulator will want to understand, so why? Why are you doing it this way? And if the, if the answer is because all our expertise is in the UK and we don't really want to move it anywhere else, then that's, that's the wrong answer. Uh, if the answer is because we're setting up a well-balanced, well-integrated group whereby the risk is well understood and well managed in, 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 in the EU27, but also we're leveraging our skills and our resource base elsewhere, then that's getting towards a, a much better answer. But all, all of these things are, are, are questions, are questions of, of, of balance. And the, as I say, the ECB SSM has talked about this. And it has sort of said, you must be able to manage the risks locally, um, and you, over time, one will expect to see that at least some of those risks 
are managed locally. And now I will, I will go to my last slide. Um, uh, actually, just one, one thing before I do that is to, is, is to, is to briefly mention um, outsourcing, um, which is a hot topic at the moment. Um, the, 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 the question around outsourcing is about um, do you, as an entity, of course, outsourcing is, is, is a very, very common feature uh, of, of the landscape and, and very beneficial and achieves lots of efficiencies and, and, and lots of, of, of enhancements. Um, it can't be done to an extent that you're hollowing out the activities. It can't be done to an extent you cannot outsource responsibilities. And you see this very clearly in the ESMA opinion that was published this, 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 this week. Um, you cannot outsource to the extent that either you're, you're leaving nothing in terms of, 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 of what, what's being done behind, or that you're outsourcing the responsibility. So you have to have in place the framework, the oversight, the abilities, the capabilities to make sure that you are still uh, running that function and charge of that function, uh, making sure that function has been done well. But of course, the tasks uh, can be outsourced. Um, now, you'll see that the ESMA opinion gets into some discussions around uh, third countries and outsourcing, outsourcing to third country. The way we read that uh, is very much around uh, if you like, what I've just been discussing, that if, if you're outsourcing, for example, to the UK, and the UK has left the EU and there's a hard Brexit, um, it, that, that can't be done in such a way that you're basically just um, putting the business back into, into the UK. You, you, the, 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 the business must still be run from the EU 27. But I think it would be uh, incorrect to think that somehow this, this, this idea of outsourcing outside the EU uh, has some... Um, that there's some legal constraint around that. There's not. If you look at the, at, at the level one text, there's no constraint around where you outsource. You may outsource to India, you may outsource to, the, to China, you may outsource to the US, you may outsource to any third country, as long as it's done, as it's done effectively. And just to finish up then, is, is just to say um, that one of the big discussions, and I started with this, and I, so I'll finish with it, one of the big discussions has been around, um, you know, is there, is there divergence across Europe uh, on these issues, and if so, is it giving rise to firms, when they're making their decisions, going the line of least resistance, going to where the interpretation seems to be the most uh, uh, easy to come to grips with? Um, there was concern around that, and the fact that these are new issues and difficult issues could easily have given rise to, 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 to challenges in that regard. We have, in the central bank, we have been very keen uh, that the European authorities uh, step into that space and step strongly into that space. And I'm really pleased um, that both the ECB and the SSM, who clearly have decision-making power in, 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 as far as banks, uh, significant banks are, are concerned, and, um, and indeed uh, LSIs as well, um, in terms of authorization, and also LSIs then... LSIs is for sorry, less significant institutions less in, in the ECB jargon. Exactly. And then this week, uh, and also in the other ESAs we've seen, ESMA produce its opinion. The other ESAs will also be producing opinions on these topics, and very importantly, ESMA has set up uh, what is called a supervisory coordination network, which is basically... Um, a, a, a pretty hard-edged challenge, challenge framework so that what's, what's happening in different jurisdictions will be subject, in my view, to pretty significant scrutiny. So I think that's a really, a really significant uh, step forward. I'll stop there and, and we'll come back to questions. Thank you so much. I forgot to say at the beginning, but I think you all know that, that this is a public session. It's actually live streamed. Everything is on record. Uh, so you can tweet, take pictures, whatever. Uh, don't tweet like uh, some star tweeters of the moment, but uh, uh, don't tell you to cough fefe in, uh, in uh, financial regulation. Anyway, Simon. Thank you. Um, the problem 
it's coming. Here we go. It won't be long. Okay. This is the, uh, this is the only slide I actually wanted. Um, the problem with the discussion about substance requirements is that it is conducted in the language of the 1980s. If you think of anybody who has so much as caught a glimpse of the word fintech should at least be aware of the fact that the old idea, um, that the old, here we go, sorry, there we go, should, should at least be aware that the old idea that financial services are conducted by a person doing a thing in a place is at least 20 years out of date. That's not how this industry works. I was talking to a head of trading at um, one of our larger banks the other day, asking him about moving business, and he pointed out that he could move 90% of his flow trading to Europe by shifting six people in a lorry load of service. This, this industry just is not localized. Um, risk management, another important issue, you know, risk management is not a bloke sitting behind a desk looking at a spreadsheet and scratching his head. It's a model. The model is centrally constructed. It accesses data from all over the place. The idea of saying, I want risk management in country X might have made sense in the 1980s. It really doesn't make sense today. So the problem is we're dealing with a fairly out-of-date regulatory architecture based on a set of territoriality concepts, which were a bit, a bit baffling. I mean, even with asset managers, if you think about it, the idea that a fund has a bloke who manages that fund and makes individual investment decisions, that is simply not how asset management companies work, or insurance companies for that matter, or have worked for a very long time. There are portfolio managers, there are funds. The interlinkages are really quite complicated. So the answer, the simple question is, what is it? And where is there? are questions that don't have answers at the moment. And this makes just answering the question, what do you want in which place, extremely hard. And by the way, this is all changing very quickly. So decisions which are taken today about what do you want, what do you mean by substance and where do you want it, will almost certainly be badly out of date in five or ten years' time. This is a very moving target. I mean, if, if the fintech res revolution goes the way people think it's going to, even identifying who is a bank and what is a deposit taker is going to become impossibly difficult, much less access to payment services and all the rest of it. So, this is, so what we're trying to do is to hit a fast-moving target with some rather out-of-date bows and arrows, which is why this is so hard to pin down. Now, one of the important things about substance requirements. This is a new issue for most continental European supervisors. The reason for that is for the last 25 years or so, if you're a third country firm and you wanted to access the European market, you did it by setting up a, a, a subsidiary in London and servicing out of there. What that does mean, however, is that London has had 30 years experience of this problem. Now, if you look at the standard UK orthodoxy, these are the PRA's principles, but this hasn't changed for as long as I can remember. Um, you must have not only your registered office, but also your head office in the United Kingdom. In other words, overall management has actually got to be here, exactly as Jerry was saying. Um, you've got to ensure that your close links, in particular links with parent undertakings, subsidiaries, and other entities, um, 
are appropriate. So a requirement that local management must be freestanding, independent of group management and all the rest of it. And capital and finances have to be capable of being freestanding. You know, what you can see there is, I think, pretty much exactly what Jerry was saying. And the real point here is if you sit down with a clean piece of paper and ask yourself, what are my requirements? Pretty much everybody gets to pretty much the same answers. So when you look at Sabine Lertenschläger's famous um, sentence a few months ago, we will not accept shell companies, anybody that must be a real bank. You take that apart, and what you've got in there is exactly the requirements the PRA has had for as long as anybody can remember. Actually, there really is no difference of policy between any supervisors that I'm aware of as to what it means to be in a place and what the minimum necessary is to be authorised in that place. And by the way, I would say that certainly from my point of view, looking at it from a kind of banker's perspective, um, one of the thoughts that can't help occurring is that although there is a lot of policymaker worry about the idea of a regulatory race to the bottom in this area. There is absolutely no sign of it amongst the regulators that we deal with. Um, that's probably a good thing. I, it would certainly be rather surprising if it happened. But actually, you know, it, 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 what, what the desiderata, I think, are common across all supervisors. The question is when you get into, with these for these four issues, what do you actually mean? Now, if you think about banks, the simple example, by and large, you look at a bank risk management function, at least half of it are engaged in credit analytics. Now, that is not the traditional, you know, bloke looking at a company and using a pocket calculator to add up the spreadsheet. That's a, that's a very complex, institution-wide bit of risk measurement software. Um, the question of how, you know, how, how do you deal with that Answer, the people in the front office who make decisions access that thing by tapping into a terminal. Do you really care where the people are who build that model? Answer, probably not. You do care about the head of risk. You care about the man who's in charge of designing the model. Or the woman. <laughs> or the woman. We're, we're getting pretty strict on these <laughs> <laughs> the chap or chapess who is, who is in charge of designing the model. But if you are looking at you know, a global bank, the odds are that those people are going to be dotted around in half a dozen places around the world. They will work cooperatively because these things are not actually all done by a single chap sitting on a, or chapess sitting on a throne. So the question of what, you, what do you really want, what are you asking for here, becomes a very hard question to answer if you are happy for your domestic subsidiary to be plugged into a global risk management system. Now, one possibility is you might not be. One possibility is you might be saying, I actually want to completely ring fence the thing in my jurisdiction so that it is effectively unconnected with the rest of the organization of which it is a part. Um, but why would you do that? You know, this is, this is equivalent to closing your jurisdiction to foreigners, and there is a certain sort of, surely, surely, there, is some, surely there is some midway between this. Well, there probably is. Um, we just don't know how to do it yet. There's a very important corollary to this, by the way. This is specific to banks and investment firms, but it is worth mentioning. 
fundamental review of the trading book as coming soon to a bank near you through CRR2. Um, FRTB is based on the idea that trading is done desk by desk. One of the many things we don't know about FRTB is whether it is going to be possible to have cross-border desks. In other words, can you have a single government bond trading desk with a single government bond trading model that has people in New York, people in London, people in Frankfurt, people in Singapore? Or is it in practice going to be the case that all of those have to be separate independent trading desks operating off separate independent trading models? Nobody knows the answer to that one. Um, but if we can have global trading desks, does that mean that the local supervisor has to, has to admit that he's no longer got any control of that risk? If we can't, then how does the supervisor supervise the local modelling support? Again, interesting stuff, no obvious answers. We asked the question about staff, which staff? Now, this is one of the areas where the UK position and the European position really are not even remotely symmetrical. Um, the way that the PRA looked at third country banks coming into London was to say, I will require you to go out and hire experienced senior local staff and experienced senior local directors. The PRA's view was, and the Bank of England's view before it, was sometimes rather unkindly characterised as wanting somebody who was one of us on the board of them. But actually, that's not a completely inaccurate way of looking at it. Neither is it the worst way, the worst way to approach this particular challenge. But if that's, but if you can't do that, if they just aren't, the, you can't say you just go and recruit enough people locally because there aren't enough people locally. Actually, importing more and more of them isn't always going to give the supervisor the same degree of confidence that what he's actually getting is 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 real local control and real local management. And in particular, I mean, the other very important point that Jerry raised, if you relocate the head of trading from London to Frankfurt, he'll probably remain head of trading. The bulk of his job is probably still in London. If you're the German supervisor, how comfortable are you about that, really? This, this stuff is hard. Um, most banks, most investment firms, most people will tell you that they've probably slightly over-invested in London in the last 10 years anyway. Canary Wharf may be the most expensive spot on the face of the planet to keep staff. And particularly as far as client coverage is concerned, there has been a move to push people out away from the centre and closer to the clients for some time. There's also been a significant amount of outsourcing just driven by costs. You know, you'd be amazed how many... London-based banks have enormous processing operations in places like Poland. So actually moving people out of London is something which has been happening. But the whole question of which people, how, who, and the local managers, how do they interact with the group senior management, this is all really hard stuff. And the problem you have is that with the best will in the world, writing this stuff down is impossible. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're, what you're trying to do is to say, this is how I want the head of risk to interact with the local head of risk. 
you know, you, you can write pages and pages of guff or you can pay lawyers to do it. Um, everybody knows, they know, the supervisor knows, their own manager knows. That's really not going to have any significant impact on their actual day-to-day behaviour. So you can say, oh, well, these are, the, these are the reporting lines. Here is a beautiful org chart. Answering the questions, how will this actually work, is generally something you won't know until you try it. And um, that, takes us to, um, that takes us to operational management. What do you have to manage to be a manager? There will be all sorts of management in local establishments. You know, somebody's got to employ the secretary, somebody's got to lease the photocopiers. It's not that there won't be management, it's that that sort of management isn't the sort of management that the supervisor is even remotely interested in. Um, I'm sure you'll be familiar, many of the older banks who used to have um, national operations, it tended to be a bit of a running joke that in some of these, in, in some of these officers, the national operation was a fortress and nobody in head office could find out anything about what was going on in that particular country just because you happen to have a particularly strong-willed head of country who managed to convince everybody locally that they were all reporting to him. Other countries, same organisation, identical procedures, head office could actually find out what was going on locally and in some cases head office could micromanage what was going on locally. If you were to ask, what, what are the drivers of that? You know, is it to do with the bank's culture? Nope, it's, it's just to do with the people. Um, and again, most, all good supervisors know that the first thing to watch out for when keeping an eye on any potential crisis is sort of the overmighty ruler who refuses to allow anybody, to, anybody in his empire to speak to anyone else. But That's generally a he. <laughs> That's almost invariably he come to think of it. Yes. Um, there might be exceptions. <laughs> but of course, the difficulty for um, the difficulty for the national supervisor, and this is where we get into another bit of interesting um, UK learning. The people who are best positioned to keep an eye on your country head are actually the global heads in that organisation. <laughs> So no matter how keen you might be on establishing local autonomy, in a funny sort of way, your closest allies in terms of the supervision of what you are there to regulate are the colleagues in the very organisation whom you're trying to create separation from. Um, all of this is really nothing more than, um, than, than a long way of saying, we're learning this, we don't know how the process works. Um, I would say one thing, one last thing about um, local booking and in particular this wonderful discussion about back-to-backing. Um, back-to-backing into a subsidiary is not nearly as easy as it sounds. Um, if you just take all the risk off as soon as it happens, all that happens is that the subsidiary ends up with an enormous large exposure to the parent, which the parent then has to collateralise, which means you end up with a dead pool of cash in the subsidiary, which costs a fortune. So actually, in terms of managing the risk in subsidiaries, that is harder than you'd think. It also increases cost because you have to leave some risk behind. It increases capital requirements on a group-wide basis because these things don't completely cancel out. There are all sorts of ways of moving risk around a group. Um, none of them are free. So if you have 
a subsidiary which is really independent and really acknowledged by its regulator to be, to, 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 to be independent. You have to remember that the environment within which that operates will mean that doing business out of that subsidiary will almost necessarily always be a little bit more expensive than doing the identical piece of business directly off the home balance sheet. And if you think through the drivers that that creates for conduct, for behaviour, for the interaction between the subsidiary and the parent, then that, I think, helps you to contextualise the problems, and in particular, to contextualise the... How do we put this politely? The incentives to do things not quite in accordance with what you said to the regulator you were going to do that are inherent within this structure. We'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, uh, Jerry. Thanks, Simon. Uh, this was splendid to set the scene. Um, I guess it's impossible not to think of some paraphrase of Mrs. May and say that the, if a financial firm brands itself as a citizen of the world, it's probably a citizen of nowhere. Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> um, because we're slightly behind time, uh, my Sorry. mistake, uh, I'm not going to ask questions myself, but I'll give Jerry an opportunity if you want to react to what Simon said briefly, or should we just go uh, to let's the Let's throw it open. Let's throw it open. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we open it up. The rules are easy. Uh, please uh, raise your hand or catch my um, attention uh, somehow. Uh, introduce yourself briefly, ask a question, or pretend to ask a question, and uh, please. Thank you. So uh, I am Stéphane Pontoiseau, uh, Head of Market Intermediaries at the IMF, uh, the French Securities Regulators. Um, and of course That's the AMF, not the IMF. Yeah, AMF. <laughs> <laughs> not global yet. Um, so a lot have been said, uh, but I uh, would like to stress uh, some, uh, some of our views. Uh, first of all, uh, clearly outsourcing is uh, nothing new. Uh, we are all used to authorize and supervise uh, firms uh, that rely on outsourcing, uh, more or less, uh, inside or outside the group, inside or outside the EU. Um, and uh, there are well-known principles that were described just before a moment uh, in the European uh, regulation. Um, also, we believe at the IMF that uh, there would be a benefit to align uh, UCITS requirements and uh, AIFMD uh, requirements. Um, however, uh, we have to recognize that uh, Brexit creates a specific uh, context. Uh, potentially, uh, we will see firms massively outsourcing uh, to a future third country. Um, there, are, uh, there is time pressure uh, on the firms uh, to adapt, so that's an incentive to minimize, of course, uh, relocation of staff, technical needs, and capital. That's perfectly uh, understandable. Uh, and uh, there is a competition between financial center to attract business and jobs, so that could induce a race to the bottom. So uh, we at EMF are, of course, uh, strong supporters of uh, SMA initiatives. Uh, as well as SSM, as my colleague from uh, Ireland uh, just said, uh, we believe there is value uh, to promote supervisory convergence and make sure uh, we all look at uh, the question uh, in the same way. 
Um, that being said, uh, we have to recognize that it's a very tricky issue. Uh, the global the general principles uh, all sound common sense. If you read the ESMA opinion just released, it all sounds common sense to, to most of us. Uh, but uh, it's true that it's extremely challenging uh, to then uh, go into the details and try to issue specific guidance. Uh, ESMA uh, is currently working on uh, sector by sector guidance. Uh, it's important that we somehow go into the details uh, to see how we translate these general principles in the real world, I would say. Uh, but I fully agree that uh, we have to remain uh, pragmatic and this cannot be a checkbox uh, approach. Um, my experience of authorization tells me that uh, it's always a case-by-case -case, uh, approach. We have to appreciate uh, the level of risk, uh, each measure uh, to manage this risk uh, adequately. Um, and. Uh, we also have to, to recognize that uh, outsourcing is also, uh, as soon as it's well managed, uh, a powerful uh, factor of operational performance, of quality of service. So uh, clearly we should not see outsourcing as a evil. Uh, just has to be properly managed uh, and uh, we need to be uh, pragmatic each time we will review uh, authorizations. and. There is probably value to have exchange of views between regulators uh, as it's uh, planned uh, with NESMA. Thank you very much. Uh, and thanks for coming, by the way, because it's, uh, it was also one of the aims of this session uh, to have an exchange also among different mm. uh, authorities to the extent uh, relevant. Um, yeah, um, please. Thank you. Um, Sheila Nickel from, uh, from Schroeder's. Um, thank you very much both for actually some very stimulating um, uh, thoughts. And um, in many ways sparked by um, the challenges of regulating entities that are operating in multiple jurisdictions. Um, I haven't heard any reference to regulatory cooperation um, in these discussions. And indeed, um, there seems to be almost a move away from that, because if you read the ESMA paper, there is a lot of insistence on, or there are two references to a right to have access to the site of any, anyone to whom activity is outsourced or delegated, and indeed the right to do on-site visits without the approval of any other third party. And that sounds very much like a nationalistic approach of saying we are going to do this and we are going to do this ourselves. And that I just wondered, I suppose for both of you, but particularly for Jerry, where does regulatory cooperation come into this? Jerry, do you want to comment yeah, on that? So, so let me pick up, I think, I think um, on both those sets of comments, which I think are are very pertinent and, 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 and to the issues that, that, are, that, are, being that are being wrestled with. Um, on the, um, so I agree with an awful lot of, of what was said by, by the colleague from the IMF, um, uh, and, and I think there's, you know, there's an awful lot of, of, of common ground there. I suppose the, the one thing that, that for me uh, is, is important, and, 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 it, and it has been and continues to be, um, is that 
the, there, there are two things, that, uh, at least two things that, that are happening here. W one is, at the political level, uh, we will see over the coming period of months uh, very high intensity, very difficult, uh, very significant negotiations going on. And they will go to the, to the heart of many of the things that, that, that uh, many of the assumptions and the, and, and the tenets upon which we currently base ourselves. Um, it is important that we as regulators don't get ahead of that. Um, there, there, are some, there are some big issues that, that are for discussion there. We as regulators have a set of issues we're trying to deal with now, and it's particularly this issue of convergence and avoiding divergence and making sure that we all act in some degree of, of, of coordination. Um, that, that is our challenge, but that is within the current dispensation. We, we know the legislation, we know the framework. It has been, uh, it has been uh, both technically and politically built up o o over, over a, a significant period of time, um, and it should not be for regulators. And I, and I don't think it is, but I think it's worth saying. Um, it should not be for regulators to go beyond that. So we must operate within, within the confines of that. Uh, and I think that is, that is, that is very important. Um, on the question, so Sheila, you're, you're right in a way, but, 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 but also one, one, on this question of regulatory cooperation, at the beginning of my remarks I said, and I think it is, you know, that the discussion is happening on the basis of a hard Brexit. So, so there's sort of an assumption that we're facing a period of, um, that we may be, that there's a, there's a non-trivial risk that we may be facing a period of, 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 uh, um, of time where there is just a... a, a a, sh a sharp break uh, between between the EU 27 and the UK in terms of the of, of the level of, of legal and structural integration. That, that's sort of the, it's, it's the plan, hoping for the best, planning for the worst aspect of that. But I, I totally agree with you um, that wherever we end up, uh, the, the issue of regulatory cooperation will be absolutely central. And I think as a regulatory com uh, community, that is you know that is that, that is a very significant. Um, uh, part of, of our DNA. So and, and, just, yes. to, just to decode, uh, your question, Sheila, was primarily in terms of regulation between the UK authorities and their counterparts in the EU27. Do I understand correctly? Yes. Okay. It's probably obvious it's, to everybody, but yeah. let yeah. me just uh, emphasize this. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And so, 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 so to, to my mind, if, if we end up somewhere where uh, we have, you know, whatever it might be, the, the, the sort of, uh, whatever equivalence becomes or some kind of partnership or whatever those, those arrangements are, um, hopefully, uh, from a regulatory point of view, um, the sort of, the, 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 the degree of integration remains, remains pretty strong um, and therefore the, the regulatory cooperation remains pretty strong. Even if we don't, regulatory cooperation must, must remain and, and should remain pretty strong. But I guess what we're all looking at is, is, is the fact of if we end up in a political world where there is a break um, and where therefore we can no longer assume that the same rules will apply, how do we deal with that? So that, that's why you're not seeing the sort of the regulatory cooperation bit come through. But I, but I, I, I don't demur from anything you've said. I think exactly, exactly, it's absolutely right. A couple of words on that. Um, we do have to distinguish between regulation and supervision. As far as regulation is concerned, there is scope for cooperation. As far as supervision is concerned, there is no infrastructure, there will be no infrastructure in place after a hard Brexit that really permits 
any sort of supervisory cooperation. You have to remember, supervisors are bound by the legislation that creates them. Supervisors are not allowed to cooperate outside the scope of their legal remit. And in, inve in the investment firm world, where supervision is not coordinated at the European level and is national, then creating the framework for that sort of supervision is going to be exponentially harder. I, you know, I, I, I strongly believe that there will be a hard Brexit with no um, agreement. And in that situation, I think there is a very real risk that the supervision of major European firms will simply fall apart. Something else you have to remember in this context, European banks, all the big European banks, have broadly got their trading businesses in London. They're going to have to be branches. They're going to be regulated by the UK authorities. If there is no cooperation between the main supervisor and the UK supervisor in respect of them, that is a threat. You know, it's a threat to the UK, it's a threat to Europe. This is a very, very serious problem, and there is no sign at the moment of anybody addressing it. So I have a number of questions. I will ask everybody asking questions to be um, reasonably succinct. Uh, and I will also ask our uh, speakers to be succinct in their answers, because I, we want to take as many questions as possible. I think we'll start here. Merci, Nicolas. Florence Outrella, Jiffy. Two very short questions. Uh, it seems that, uh, it seemed to me that the regulator and the lawyer completely disagree uh, that you made two very different presentations. One saying that you should grasp the, the substance and the reality of activities in your country and, and, and the lawyer saying you can't uh, you can't grasp that. So I would be happy. Uh, it might be a regulator and a lawyer. It might an also be an Irish <laughs> regulator and a British in lawyer. In addition, <laughs> that makes it's still more difficult. But I would have liked to have the answer of the regulator to this very idea that there's no it and there's no there. And the second very short question um, that you partly answered already, uh, Simon. What would be a good deal? If there is no harm, if there's something, what should it be for the best? Yeah, let's spend the 16th time on this. So, so, we'll okay. um, so, 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 so very briefly, so, so I, I pick, uh, I, the question you asked, when, when Simon um, started speaking, I, I wondered, so are we saying very different things? And as I listened to Simon, uh, I actually thought, no, I think we're saying quite similar things, which is, uh, yes, technolog technology and the advancement of uh, risk management and risk modeling uh, and group integration has taken us a massively different place than where we were uh, 20 years ago. So if we were 20 years ago, this would be an easy thing to deal with. Um, the fact is that because we are where we are now, it is a very difficult thing to deal with. And, and that is, I think, why we're wrestling with it. So, so it's not that it no longer matters. It's just that you have to really work with well, what does it mean to be running your business from Paris or to be running your business from Dublin uh, if actually um, the risk model is a global risk model? Um, and, and, so it's very difficult, but I think there are answers, and I think it's finding the answers uh, that, that we are currently engaged in. Um, I'll let Simon answer the good deal. Oddly enough, that's the easier question to answer. In a, a good deal for both sides would be the broad continuation of where we are now. 
brutally for the next 10 years, the city of London is going to remain Europe's primary financial centre. After that, don't know. Next 10 years, fairly clear. Europe must have a strong say in the supervision of that financial centre. That would strike you as a sort of non-negotiable minimum. There's a very obvious trade-off for that. If Europe by, has a By Europe, you presumably mean the EU27. EU27. If, if, there's, a fa there's a fairly obvious deal there to be done. If the EU27 can have a satisfactorily substantial say in the regulation of the city, then there is no reason why some sort of equivalence-based market access approach should not, should, should, should not continue to operate. So that's, sort of, that, that's the win-win. I must say, I don't believe there's the slightest chance of getting there. <laughs> So obviously the question that remains open, Florence, is what uh, would we have heard if I had, uh, if we had Bruegel had invited uh, an Irish lawyer and a British uh, regulator? Um, question here, I think. Thank you very much, Jutaro uh, Kaneko, Japan Center for International Finance. Uh, in order to measure, measure the Brexit's impact on city, I find it also important to realize uh, potential uh, impact on uh, financial market infrastructures. In this regard, uh, I'm very curious uh, <coughs> to know the future treatment uh, of uh, CRS Bank uh, and uh, access banks, uh, UK banks access to Target 2. Uh, apart from the, the future treatment of LCH Kriyanet. So uh, what do you think we should have in mind in this regard? Thank you very much. I, 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 can answer, I can answer the second one of those fairly easily. We currently allow Swiss banks to access Target 2, so there's no theoretical obstacle to UK banks accessing Target 2 post-Brexit. That is an operational decision for the ECB. Um, the same, to some extent, I think, goes for CLS. There is nothing in Brexit that should necessarily and automatically result in a cessation of access. That does not mean that access will necessarily and automatically continue. But the, the, all, all of the, there are precedents for solving all of the issues that Brexit creates. No, I don't think I've got much to, to, to add to that, really. I think it's, a, it is the, um, it's the dynamic that the, the negotiations may or may not unleash that mm. I think is the, uh, is the, is the thing to, from a sort of a regulatory and a financial stability perspective to, 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 to worry about. Um, so I, I guess we can all, uh, and I, won't, I won't speculate too far, but I think we can all um, identify sort of from a financial services perspective what would be the best answers. You can differ, but you can, you, you can sort of get there. I think the challenge is um, how they get delivered in a, in a, in a political context as, as, we are, as we are seeing, and, and, that's, and that's frankly just beyond my, my, my remit. Don? I just wanted to come back on what was mentioned on supervisory cooperation, because I think there are distinct points here. There's a difference between recognition, access across borders, and existing activity between firms within groups across borders and the question of supervision of those activities. And you could see that the question of access to a market falls very much within the remit of a broader conversation uh, in a negotiation. My question is really, 
do we think that the orderly functioning of markets falls within the Brexit negotiations or outside the negotiations? And the question of, and it's a very difficult, I realize it's a difficult one to answer, but because clearly lifts have implications politically and therefore to an extent they do, but on the other hand, supervisors have responsibility to maintain orderly functioning markets. So do we think that preparing for the worst applies to supervisors as much to, as to firms, and that preparing for the worst includes getting in place MOUs which enable data sharing and continued orderly functioning of markets, or do we think that that falls within the remit of negotiation? So let me let me have a have a first stab at that. So I think I think you make a very very good distinction, uh, Donald. I think it's I think it's absolutely right. Um, and I and I and, and my basic uh, answer is yes, you're right. The, the prepare for the worst applies to supervisors equally as as it provide as as it applies to others. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we all have financial stability uh, as as well as uh, consumer protection and. Uh, effective financial regulation uh, remits. So, so I think that that uh, is something that, to my mind, we, sh we, 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 we will need to be focused on over the next short and, and, and thereafter period. Gary, not time. asking for any insider information here, especially as we are in a public session, uh, but isn't that already happening? Yeah, it, it, it is happening. Um, but I think the, but I, I think in, in fact that the focus at the moment, frankly, has been has been uh, the intense focus has been on if I, what, where, where the strong activity is, which is the, uh, the the question of the location of of activities. And in that context, a lot of discussions have have been happening because you're absolutely right. The the um, you know the entities that move from, for example, to take that example, entities that move from the UK to, to EU27, or activities that move from EU27, will still be part of a group. And the, the regulation, super, the supervision of that group remains something which is of, of, of interest to both sides, if I, if I can use those terms. So, so that kind of uh, interaction is, is clearly ongoing. Um, I think the, the, um, the, 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 the larger, and so, so I think there, there, there is lots of uh, engagement that is going, but I, I'm agreeing with Donald that as, as we move forward into this, I think we're going to have to ramp up different, different forms of, of cooperation. I think, that is, I think that's right. And it goes back to Sheila's point, I would agree with that. I would just caution against assuming that supervisory cooperation is something supervisors can agree amongst themselves. And if you, supervisors can really only do these things properly if they have sort of sufficient statutory cover, and that will push the discussion up into the political arena, whether you like it or not. But is that true? Because in terms of crisis management, if perhaps not in crisis prevention, mm -hmm. um, I guess it really depends which sort of crisis we're talking about, but one lesson of the uh, big episode of crisis of 2007, 2008, is that central banks, for example, so mm -hmm. if we think of you know, critical infrastructure and that sort of supervisory duties that have something to do with financial stability, um, have been able to talk to each other pretty uh, effectively at uh, many points of the crisis. I'm not talking about the resolution of, yeah. or, the, or the, the management of, say, Fortis, mm -hmm. but, uh, but uh, if you think of the really super systemic critical mm -hmm. stuff. But as, as, as a counterexample, look at, you know, look at the debate over Euro clearing. The reason the French are so worked up about this is at the height of the Euro crisis, LCH, for whatever reasons, believed to be on the instruction of its supervisor, jacked up collateral requirements 
on a bunch of banks in a way that was viewed from this side of the Atlantic as you know, imperiling the euro and the future. You probably means a channel. <laughs> well, it's Atlantic for Spain, isn't it? <laughs> um, but it, on, on, it, 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 these were decisions that were perceived here as imperiling the euro and the European economic system. But as far as the UK regulators were concerned, they had a very clear statutory mandate, which was the economic stability of the UK. So you know, it, it doesn't take much in a crisis to find supervisors, put supervisors in a position where no matter how much they might want to, to cooperate, they are effectively prevented from doing so by their national legislative mandates. And it, 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 supervision only really matters in a crisis. By the way, you're right to mention that point on uh, CCPs because it's often ignored that this is precisely uh, the driver of the yeah. current debate. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there is a sort of mercantilist overlay, and it does exist also, I speak as a proud Frenchman, uh, but, uh, but I think what you mentioned mm -hmm. is really what makes this debate so, uh, yeah. so uh, animated. Uh, yeah. You also reminded me of uh, Chancellor Philip Hammond's uh, remarks mm -hmm. that the UK think, thinks of itself mm -hmm. as a mid-Atlantic country. Uh, <laughs> well, it does. We'll, we'll do clearing, you can do yogurt. <laughs> um, well, um, I'm not going to react to that. Uh, but I do have a follow-up question, uh, which is inside, uh, and which I guess is for you, Jerry, inside the EU27. Uh, you mentioned, and I guess that also counts as supervisory coordination uh, or cooperation, the, the process that ESMA is initiating of the sort of you know, robust cross-checking. Yeah. I don't remember the exact jargon. Uh, can you give us a bit more language, and maybe that's explained in the ESMA uh, opinion, on how this is enforceable or going to be enforced? Yeah, so, so the, the, the strict answer is that it is, it is not legally enforceable. It's, it's not even, in fact, strictly speaking, guidance. It's, it's an opinion, uh, because it was decided that in terms of the time timelines are very tight, so the quickest thing to do is an opinion, so we, we, we will do an opinion, and, and that's what, what, what we did. Um, uh, so, so, so legally it's not enforceable. Um, what the, 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 the debate then that also went on, I, I think I can say, there was a discussion around, so, so how, do you, how do you give it as much bite as possible that is consistent with uh, legal responsibilities and accountability? So there was, there was a debate around, you know, can we bring individual applications and authorizations to the table at ESMA? And sort of can can it, should, should an authority be explaining what it's doing in respect of individual material applications? And there was a feeling that that probably goes beyond the sort of the, the, the legal dispensation, the sort of the, the accountabilities, the responsibilities, of, which is what the current framework is. And so what we will what we will have is 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 a network of um, uh, of, of 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 senior level uh, supervisors from from the, the, the competent authorities. Who will who will be required? Who are required under peer accountability, if you like, to moral bring suasion. moral suasion to to bring to the table the issues, the key issues that they are seeing, and the key questions that they are answering, and how they are answering they, them will, will in they, relation to anonymous cases. So um, they won't give the name of the firm. they won't give the name of the firms. Um, uh, 
So that's, yes, yes. if I remember correctly, that's pretty similar to what they do in financial reporting, right? Yeah, that was, that was uh, there, there's I mean. debate around how similar, how diff different it is, but I think the, 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 the narrative would be that it's quite similar to And to I that. think yes. the general view, at least in the industry, is that on financial reporting, it has not led to convergence. Yeah, so, so it's, 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 new, it's, it's new territory in terms of authorizations. My own view is, um, my own view is, is, is that, it, that, that, that what, what ESMA is doing will be effective, I, I think, because, because I think the, um, uh, the, the, first of all, the, the debate itself has been, a, has, has been an intensive debate, an intensive discussion around these issues. And my, a lot of it has been uh, a learning thing. It kind of, you know, well, actually is, you know, to, to Simon's kind of point, these are difficult issues, how do we think about them? So, so there's already been a lot of coming together. And, and I think, yeah, sure, at the end of the day, you may have disagreement, and you may have an authority that says, look, I don't agree with that. But I think it's much more difficult to say, I will do something that is, you know, really beyond what people would think is sort of a, a, an appropriate way. I, th I think it, it, it brings within a very, not absolute convergence, but within a, within a, a significant degree of convergence, how we approach it. So yeah, it, it, you know, that's, the legal, that's the legal world. I have another question, which is to Simon, and we mentioned both SMA and the SSM, but obviously the legal framework is different. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of debate in many firms. Uh, I'm not talking here about insurers or asset managers, but say investment banks, whatever that means. Um, on the choice of legal form, right? I mean, will there be a bank or will there be a broker dealer in yeah. the uh, or investment intermediary mm -hmm. uh, in the EU27? And obviously, that has mm -hmm. an impact, at least mm -hmm. at the current juncture, on uh, how they will be supervised and by whom. Can you yeah. can you give us a bit of color of what is, of what is at stake in this sort of choice, and how you see the debate evolving uh, in the last few weeks, in the next mm -hmm. few weeks? Stance of the ECB, stance of the Fed, that sort of thing. Well, it, 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 it remarkably little is the answer. I mean, there's, there's a strong view amongst the larger firms that act, actively being a bank is a good thing because that will get you SSM supervision. I mean, the single most important thing if you're a London-based broad service bank moving stuff into Europe is the sophistication of your supervisor. And being an investment firm in a country with a small investment supervisor is fairly frightening in that regard, particularly if you're going to want to operate a trading book model. But the Central Bank of Ireland is a big investment supervisor. Yes, exactly. I love <laughs> but I mean, you, you, you think about the number of European countries with big investment supervisors, and you, you know, really fingers of one hand. I don't, I, I, a, a, a healthy hand? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. But you know, there's, there's, it matters to one of the thing, I think the thing that matters most to firms is that the supervisor is going to be able to understand their business, yeah. approve their models, and grasp their risk management processes. That actually doesn't give you a very large pool of possible options. But are you implying that the big firms that may have may face this choice between broker-dealer or bank mm. are leaning towards bank at this point? Yes, because that gets you SSM supervision. Okay. Uh, no outliers? I, I, not that I can think of is okay. the answer. I mean, you know, the, the, the risk of being caught with a supervisor who doesn't, who sort of isn't fully up to speed with your business is quite significant. And it's something that firms don't particularly want to take. 
Interesting. So let me give it back to the, the source. Sorry, I retained it for some time. If you don't have questions, I have more, but I prefer if you have questions. And it has a question. Yeah, please. Was it? Ed. Yeah. Hi. <clears throat> By the way, congratulations on your live stream. Theorist, I was delayed an hour, but I followed everything perfectly. Edward Bowles, Standard Chartered, one of the firms that has taken a decision to apply. Congratulations to them. They're doing yeah. all the well, well done, real stuff. Um, <laughs> Jerry, could you reflect a little on Sam Wood's letter to uh, all firms operating in the UK and what the reaction has been over here? We heard earlier this week that perhaps the SSM is now asking the EU27 firms with operations in London to vet their, vet their responses with them before they send them in. Um, on the nine principles ESMA put out, the first one was no automaticity of authorization recognition. Does that extend to model approval? Um, is the EU really ready to go through massive model approval exercises for market risk books, etc.? How does that then get into supervisory cooperation? Because these supervisors are all part of the uh, college of Managers for these firms anyway, uh, the College of Supervisors, they are going to be meeting Not regularly. Managers. College, <laughs> yeah, indeed. So um, just some observations on that would be good. And that was Ed Bowles from Standard Chartered. Um, uh, so so I, I read, um, so the, the, the SSM has been very, uh, I think, I, at least to my mind, very very clear on, on the issue of, of, of internal models, which is, uh, which is a question of, um, not grandfathering per se, um, but that uh, given the, uh, it goes back to what I, what I was saying earlier on in, in terms of you know, trying to balance rigor with practicable feasibility. And so the, the idea that uh, if, you're, if you have a model which is currently uh, approved by, by the PRA or FCA, uh, who, who are approving that as high quality supervisors acting within the framework of, of, of the EU, um, there's a lot of significance to that fact. So it allows you some freedom of, 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 of mood, movement and, and flexibility. So the SSM has, has articulated um, the, the, the fact that uh, for a, a period of time, uh, the models can continue to be used by the newly authorized entity, even though they have not yet been per se approved, fully approved uh, by, by, by the SSM. Though, of course, that's subject to a number of, of, of appropriate conditions in terms of the suitability of the model and uh, the in, engagement with the, with, with the UK supervisor. Um, I, the, the, um, the, the bit you refer to in, 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 the, ESMA, um, in the ESMA opinion, if you, if you read down to the next uh, principle, then, so, so how I read that and my interpretation of it is that um, in terms of authorization, the formal authorization and the, the requirement to be authorized, um, a, there is no fast-track approach. So I think it puts to bed that, that argument that somehow because you are currently authorized as an entity uh, by, in the UK, you can then say, well, just fast-track us here because it's clearly it's a new entity. It's not the same entity. It's a new entity. It's got new management. It's doing new business, so it's a new entity. So the authorization requires to be fully done in the U27. I don't, in my mind, that does not apply to the question of, for example, things like model approval. That's not part of the authorization per se. That's a separate issue around risk management and capital, capital calculations. And if you look further into the document, there's discussion around reliance on, for particular aspects, uh, what's going on in, 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 in uh, what has been approved in the UK, reliance on the UK, et cetera, et cetera. So, so um, 
I th my own view is that the SSM view on this is, is the one that is uh, um, appropriate um, and is um, well articulated, and I, think, and I haven't come across any dissent from, from, from that, that sort of positively articulated view of it. Um, on the PRA's uh, letter, I, I don't have any uh, particular views beyond the view that it was a very sensible letter uh, for the PRA given, given where it was, and it, it sort of complemented uh, well the, the, the sort of the, the activity that we are seeing on, on our side of, in this case, the Irish Sea, uh, in terms of kind of where, 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 for, where firms are. Um, where, where firms are. So, so I, we have, you know, we, we found it sort of a, A, it's a letter we can fully understand why a regulator in the UK's uh, regulatory position would do it, and B, helpful in terms of saying, um, let's get clarity around some of these things. Uh, so I have no sort of strong view on that. Simon, uh, you have observed this. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes is the answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, do you agree? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 absolutely is the answer. You know, this is, this is, this is, this is what this is one of these things that in, firms can't answer these questions easily because they don't know what's going to happen. But the regulator is not asking them what's going to happen. The regulator is asking what's your plan, and we do know that, well, I know from talking to firms, that most people thought they had a pretty good plan. Then when they sat down to answer the Sam Woods letter, they found all sorts of things that they really should have thought about and perhaps hadn't. Sam Woods but, referring to the I'm head sorry. of regulation at the PRA. Right? Yes, yes, who, who wrote this famous letter to everybody in London saying, what exactly are your plans? You know, th th this, in my view, is supervision at its absolute best. <laughs> Uh, maybe a, a brief question to Mr. Pontoiseau, because we, we are lucky to have you as another uh, national competent authority. Um, of all the stuff we've been saying here, uh, are, is there anything where you feel the, the perspective seen from Paris, and meaning Paris, AMF, not Paris, ESMA, uh, is uh, slightly different, or would you say nothing to uh, dissent from? Microphone, because it's live streams, the microphone is a must. Um, no, I, I believe we are, uh, we are quite aligned and uh, we, we, share, um, we share many views. Uh, just maybe to, uh, to react on uh, two topics that uh, were mentioned earlier uh, on the question of uh, how do you uh, supervise uh, a business which is not localized. Uh, we have to recognize that. Uh, and it, it's not new, it's not only a FinTech question. Uh, in March 2000, I was a, a young trainee at SOCGEN. I was on the floor, uh, derivatives trading, and uh, they already had a trading desk in Singapore, in Tokyo, in New York, uh, cooperating in a very effective way. So uh, that, that, that's not that new, actually. Um, but the key question, uh, there are very, very hard legal questions and uh, where the service is localized, and that, that, that's, you know, things we struggle with since 20 years, at least. Um, but the key question is, uh, who's responsible for what business within the firm and uh, among regulators? And uh, if you have some sort of you know, global uh, mix of shared responsibilities, then you, you might have a risk that, you know, 
the guy in front believes you do the job and uh, you believe he does the job. So uh, th that's something uh, important uh, in, my, uh, in my opinion. And uh, in relation to the, the, the question of uh, regulators' cooperation, uh, I fully agree that we, we need uh, MOUs or uh, some sort of framework to be able to share uh, data as we need to share information and so on. Uh, I'm not going to go on the political field because that's not my, my bite, but uh, we today have open lines with uh, supervisors at the FCA, and I see no reason why we shouldn't have in some form these lines of communications open uh, after Brexit, whatever form it, it takes. Unless the EU uh, 27 adopts the policy that everything should be done in French, right? <laughs> Um, other questions? The UK is, after all, supposed to have more French speakers than any other EU member state. And as you remember, the court <laughs> of the King of England until the late 14th century spoke exclusively in, in French. French. Absolutely. Um, no French. So uh, we have discussed a lot about uh, investment firms and a bit about asset managers. We haven't said anything about insurers. Is there anything special about insurers? Do, do any of you want to talk about it, or it's too carbon-ridden anyway? Um, no, I, I think I think I think the um, a lot of the discussions are are, are, are similar, or, or there's you know they adjusted for 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 for, for, for local um, local doing. I, I suppose one of the things about insurance is that depending on the type of insurance, um, is that the understanding of the local environment. If you're insuring risks in a local context, um, presence there to understand those risks. Mm. So for example, legal system risks, uh, uh, road traffic habits, you know, had the, you know, all those things. <laughs> the, the, that, that sort of adds an added dimension, I think. That, that, uh, I, I don't think it goes to the, sort of to the heart of the discussions that we're having at the moment. But, but in the past, we've had discussions of kind of uh, insurance companies locating somewhere to do a certain type of business elsewhere in the world. You do get into so well. How does that actually work? How do you understand the risks in South America if you're based in in, in, in Paris or Madrid or, or, or Dublin or whatever? Um, so, but that's I think that apart, the the the, um, the principles that we're discussing at the moment are broadly similar. Do you see the the issues we are discussing today playing out similarly for insurance? Well, the, I'm, first of all, leaving aside the whole horrible and difficult challenge of Lloyd's of London, which is right. <laughs> just too unique and complicated. But as far as the insurance industry is concerned, um, first of all, the insurance industry to a very large extent is a kind of subdivision of the asset management industry. You know, a life insurer is a fund manager with a small mortality business. Um, but insurers have generally been much more used than banks or investment firms or anybody else to operating in these sort of more fragmented structures right. with more national subsidiaries. So, and so for an insurer, actually this is a lot easier because they've never really had the sort of single legal entity global business structure that you tend to find with banks. So I think the reason we hear less from the insurers in this context is because it's actually not as big a problem for them as it is for some other types of firm. Okay, we still have space for one or two questions. Uh, the room is much more subdued in terms of asking questions than I had expected. Donald, help us. You have more questions, I know that. 
Just then as a follow-up to what we discussed earlier on supervisory cooperation, I did note in the outsourcing um, paper by ESMA that they made specific, specific note of the fact that the continued operation of existing delegation outsourcing was contingent on cooperation agreements. And that um, was noteworthy that that was placed in the paper because one would assume, particularly given the context of the paper, that cooperation was at the level of supervisors, and that was partly behind my question. Cooperation at the level of supervisors was a, was a given at the level of uh, orderly markets. So that was, if I will, a follow-up, that that was mentioned explicitly by ESMA as a condition for continued activity. So uh, if I understand you correctly, you imply that in a cliff-edge, hard-Brexit, disastrous scenario, it's not self-evident that we will have this sort of agreement for cooperation? I just note the fact that ESMA noted the fact that <laughs> it's contingent on the existence of these cooperation agreements and the very fact of noting the fact that cooperation agreements are needed for this continued activity would raise a question over whether they will exist. And that's noting the fact that they noted the fact. But um, is it, I mean, Jerry, you will say yeah. this is too political, but is it conceivable even in the most disastrous scenario of unilateral Brexit, no deal, no whatever, is it conceivable that the uh, UK authorities would not uh, have those agreements with uh, uh, their EU27 counterparts? Well, I mean, there are existing precedent agreements. The UK could put those in place in an afternoon if it wanted to. Um, but that's, I, I come back to my earlier point, that's not something supervisors can or will do of their own motion. The decision to do that is, 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 is ultimately a political decision. It's, you know, the, 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 most inter-supervisor memoranda say absolutely nothing, to be perfectly honest. They're frameworks that protect cooperation rather than legislative mandates that compel it. So that it, it's not a hard thing to do, and the, prob the obstacles to doing it are not technical, they are political. Mm. So, I mean, let, let me, so I think that's, that's been a helpful discussion. I, I sort of see that at least three aspects. Of this. I, think, I think Simon's point about the, you know, um, what happens in death uh, is, is, is absolutely, you know, is, is, a, is, a, is a core one. We, we all know, we all know clearly and strongly from the crisis um, that unless you have some form of overarching legal set of requirements, um, memorandum of understanding, or anything else you might put in place, mm -hmm. will not stand up to the fire of a crisis. So, yeah. so and that and that reads all the way. Simon and I have been discussing this for at least ten years in, in, in the context of, of resolution and etc. That, that that feeds all the way back uh, to to how supervision is, is done. Mm. So that's that's true. Um, I think, however, you, you you can abstract from that and say, in terms of how we get comfortable. Um, with, for example, how an entity is operating in the context of a group is if we understand how the group is being supervised and we understand the standards to which the group is being supervised and we know the regulator and supervisor of that group, let's take the PRA, and we know what they're like and we have a good relationship with them, then if you're supervising the entity, you're in a much more relaxed posture than if you think, well, I don't know what the rules are, I don't know who the supervisor, what they really are. So, so there's sort of that, that question of, 
cooperation with the supervisor gives you significant comfort as the, as the subsidiary's parent. But then thirdly, coming back to the point in ESMA, I, I read that as simply being a reference to what's currently in the uses legislation, um, I think it's the uses legislation, uh, which is the, the, the it may be AIFMD, um, which is the, the requirement to have an MOU in place at the moment to outsource to third country. So I just read that as being a reference to that. So I wouldn't read anything further into that. Donald, what were you murmuring? AFNB. Okay. Um, on this note, uh, I thought somebody would make a joke about substance abuse uh, at some point during the discussion. Uh, but um, um, thanks for um, your participation. Thanks particularly to our two speakers. And let me suggest we give them a well-deserved round of applause.